Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of August 10th, 2023. My name is Gregory Hanark. For today's reading, we'll be covering the following stories. South Jeffco Rotary members, Marcelina Oti, the Rotarian who builds a school in Uganda, by Joe Davis for the Jefferson Transcript. Morrison officials approve rezoning parcel for a pot shop, by Deb Hurley Brobst for the Jeffco Transcript. How Arvada's One Small Step program is combating homelessness. Quote, I can't keep living this life no more. By Lillian Fugle for the Arvada Press. Livin' La Vida Volta. Converted classics on display at Golden's Electric Car Show. By Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Mines adding amenities, seating in Marv K. Stadium's West End Zone, a beer garden, walkway, scheduled to open by August 31st, football game. By Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript, and following up with various articles. South Jeffco Rotary remembers Marcelina Oti, the Rotarian who built a school in Uganda, by Joe Davis. The South Jeffco Rotary recently took a meeting to memorialize Marcelina Oti, a longtime educator and school founder who died July 8th. Amongst the stories told were about Oti's time in Colorado and how she convinced the Denver Metro Rotary Clubs to sponsor a preschool in her hometown of Gulu, Uganda. Town of the South Jeffco Rotary members shared some stories about OT's work with the club. Quote, Marcelina was a longtime educator. Rotarian Pamela Lacey said she wanted to be able to partner with Rotary to help support her school. And we agreed this was a great idea. Lacey described a few projects that the South, Co South Jeffco Rotary undertook to help with the Mother Earth Montessori School in Gulu City, Uganda. These include funding grading for the school building site and bricks for the walls of the building. The South Jeffco Rotarians were early supporters. I mean, we're still, we're starting back when it was still school being held under a tree, Lacey said. Today they have a building. Our very latest project is for hygiene to put in bathrooms for both adults and children and a hand washing station. Lacey is in Uganda with other Rotarians working on this project at press time. The Mother Earth Montessori School in Gulu City was the work of a lifelong educator. Oti was a teacher and she trained new teachers before fleeing Uganda in 1979. According to her obituary, Oti came to Denver and continued the work of educating kids. Marcelina completed a bachelor's and master's degree, a K-12 teacher certi certification, a diploma in Montessori education, and an educational administration certification, Oti's obituary reads. She taught adult education to immigrants before serving for nearly 30 years in early childhood education as a Montessori teacher and coach at Family Star, Mile High Early Learning Center, and in Denver Public Schools. According to her federal fellow educator and longtime friend, Rotarian Sue Davis, OT never forgot her hometown and the need for a school. Davis said that her friend shared the atrocities that led to leaving Uganda. Quote, they would kidnap boarding schools within Uganda, Davis explained, and they would kidnap 300 children at a time. And they would tell these children we're going to kill you unless you go back to your village and kill your parents. It was so bizarre. 
end quote. Davis said that O.T. shared the startling fact with her. Marcelina wanted to give back to her hometown and she wanted to give education, according to Davis. Gulu was ravaged, Davis said. As a result, it was also such an impoverished area with very little education. There was very little opportunity for education. Marcelina had always been with Montessori and she said these children desperately need preschool. So, in 2008, Davis introduced O.T. to Lacey and the South Jeffco Rotary. O.T. joined and became a very active member of the club. So, with Marcelina and the South Jeffco Rotary, the partnership has grown over the last five years, Lacey said. She's also been a big participant in some of our projects. Anytime we have a volunteer project, Marcelina is there, usually with family and her husband. At the time, the South Jeffco Rotary couldn't take on the project alone. They needed partners. O.T. Went to, look, went to each chapter to tell them about the plight of her hometown before asking the clubs to sponsor a project or to donate time or money. In order to get the Rotary clubs to help you, you had to go and make a presentation, Davis said. You show them maybe a video and you show, tell them about the project and why you feel it's so critically important. Davis said that O.T.'s presentations were so unique because of her personal connection to the area. And she showed the history of the ravaged town. It convinced several Denver metro area rotaries to donate. The Mother Earth Montessori School names the following area rotaries for their contributions. The Centennial Rotary Club, the Denver Southeast Club, the Lakewood Foundation Rotary, the Evergreen Rotary, the Denver Cherry Creek Club, the Lexington Park Club, and the South Jeffco Rotary. These clubs all donated to the school and had the, the vision that OT had, which she was always fulfilling before her passing. Marcelina was so forward-thinking, Davis said, not only does she want it to be a preschool, but so many people are illiterate. So at night, when the children are gone, OT wants the school to be an adult literacy classroom. So we bought solar lamps for the people to use. Davis went on to describe other community aspects of the school. OT meant it to be a community builder, not just a school. Quote, and when you say Montessori, you think of schools here, which have expensive toys, which are learning opportunities for the children. Davis explained. At the school Marcelina built, there's a huge garden. It affords the parents who send their children there a chance to make money by selling the produce. It's just one of the community building programs that started with the school. In light of OT's death, the Rotary is determined to continue her work in Gulu. The school will be her legacy, they said. Davis and Lacey agreed that the school is a project that South Jeffco Rotary will continue to support and with the positivity that OT always exhibited. Quote, every time Marcelina came, it was joyful, Davis said, because when she walked in the room, she was always smiling and happy and greeting people and loving. She was such a loving woman and she generated so much positive energy. You can find more information on the Mother Earth School on its website. South Jeffco Rotary has more information on its website. You can contribute to the Mother Earth School and read OT's obituary at the Ever Loved website. Morrison officials approve rezoning parcel for a pot shop by Deb Hurley Brobst. A one-acre parcel in Morrison has been rezoned to allow a marijuana company to build a store there. Despite the concern of some neighbors in Red Rocks Ranch that the shop will add to the traffic and parking woes in the area. The Morrison Board of Trustees on August 1st voted 5-1 to one to rezone the property on the northeast side of Morrison Road and the C-470 just north of the wastewater treatment plant from planned development 
to mixed-use commercial in office. Trustee David Vertz voted no because he said he didn't believe a marijuana shop should be allowed in the town. Trustee Sean Forey was absent. In July, the Morrison Planning Commission unanimously recommended that the land be rezoned. Fifteen neighbors of the property made their case during the meeting, saying people already drive too fast on Morrison Road and a retail marijuana shop would just make things worse. They also said people now park in their subdivision on their way to Bear Creek Lake Park, where residents want to walk to the park. They are taking their lives in their hands as they cross Morrison Road. Morrison Road is like a speedway, said Mary Beth Minero, who lives in Red Rocks Ranch. If Bear Creek Lake Park is filled, people park in our neighborhood. We have a big, big concern about traffic, and when the building is being built, will traffic come through our neighborhood? We should have a say. We are your new neighbors. Red Rocks Ranch resident Frank Lansville said, We strongly encourage you all to consider putting something else on that property. Background. In April of 2022, Morrison residents voted to allow a marijuana shop east of the Dakota Hogback Formation. And in December, the board entered into a contract with LiveWell, one of the largest cannabis operations in the nation, to construct a retail store on the one-acre parcel. LiveWell expects to provide the town with between $800,000 and $1.3 million each year in sales tax revenue. Plus, it will pay the town $15,000 a month to lease the property. Livewell had until the end of March to complete its due diligence, but the town board continues to extend the due diligence period. Assuming Livewell moves forward moves forward with the contract, it would be responsible for building the store, the parking lots, and the access road from the store to Morrison Road. Response to concerns. Carrie McCool, the town's planner, told residents that the proposal would go through the town's site development process that is overseen by the Planning Commission. It would include a look at all the improvements to the site, including access, lighting, safety, fencing between the shop and the residential area, and more. The Planning Commission would also request a traffic study, she said. Town officials assured residents that they would have opportunities to comment on the proposal. She said if the marijuana shop deal falls through, other commercial uses could be put on that site. We understand your concerns, Town Trustee Adam Way said. We are not trying to be bad neighbors. Trustee Katie Gill added that the town needed the revenue the shop would bring. And while she had been on the fence about whether Morrison should have a marijuana shop, voters had spoken, and she was following their wishes. I will fight to make sure we minimize traffic impact, visual impact, and any crime-related issues, she said. How Arvada's One Small Step program is combating homelessness. I can't keep living this life no more. By Lillian Fugle. As cities across the nation look for ways to assist unhoused people, Arvada is utilizing a program designed to help. One Small Step. One Small Step is designed as a way to rehabilitate criminal defendants experiencing homelessness without punitive measures. Instead of facing jail time or fines for low-level offenses, participants are connected with resources to better their lives. When defendants participate regularly and complete the program, punitive measures such as jail time or fines can be waived. The program restarted in January 2021 after experiencing a hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Housed within the municipal courts, one small step is overseen by municipal judge Catherine Kurtz. All of our defendants are really, really good, kind-hearted people who've just had a lot of struggles in their life, said Kurtz. I think the coolest part about it is watching people make progress and positive change in their life. 
Participants in the program attend weekly check-in meetings where they update the court on their lives. During these meetings, participants are also given the opportunity to speak with resource navigators who can help connect them with many resources, including housing, food, and clothing. Housing navigators from Jefferson County and the city of Arvada are able to participate, are available to participants as are resources from Community Table Food Bank and other local aid organizations. The program currently has approximately 120 participants with 40 participants attending on a weekly basis. Since January 2021, the program has seen 10 graduates. Graduating from the program looks different for each participant, but typically they no longer benefit from the resources offered by one small step, meaning they have homes and are employed. Officer Chris Humphreys, who is on Arvada Police Department's core team, which deals most frequently with the city's homeless population, believes the program helps to connect unhoused people in Arvada with resources they need and holds them accountable to achieving their goals. When he gives tickets that enroll people in the program, Humphreys knows they're facing help, not punishment. The consequence for this ticket is getting off the street, Humphreys said. No fine. There's no jail time if you comply with the program. You're just taking the literal one small step. We work with folks to try to get them plugged into the resources. When they come back next week, they tell us about the progress they've made. However, the support doesn't stop at graduation. Humphreys mentioned one recent graduate of the program who now works concessions at the Pepsi Center continues to come every week to connect with this community created by one, one small step. Quote, you don't have to keep coming if you don't want to, but we're happy to see you every week. Humphreys said to the graduate as they were like, no, I want to, this is my accountability. Judge Kurtz believes the program is creating alternative to punishing unhoused people. If these individuals would come into courts on whatever ticket that bought them, brought them into my doors, whether it be a trespass or disorderly conduct or whatever, normally we would impose some sort of fines, Kurtz said. That doesn't address the core issues that these individuals have. Instead, by connecting participants with resources, Kurtz believes the program works, quote, to address participants' core issues, mental health, substance abuse, and poverty. If we kind of flip it on its head and address those issues, then we'll have much better outcomes, Kurt said. The whole point is for those experiencing homelessness to take one small step to a more stable life. Alternate Municipal Court Judge Christopher Daly said to a defendant on July 31st, quote, we're not here for punishments. We're trying to get your life back on track. During a meeting on July 31st, one defendant expressed their desire for assistance from the program, asking Judge Daly to help them get out of their current situation. I don't want to live this life no more, the defendant said. They were, they were sentenced to a suspended fine for 12 months. If no further infractions are committed in that span, the fine will be waived. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, Kurt said. One small step because I don't ever expect perfection, just progress. I hope that we're able to provide the support that our defendants need to help make progress, progress in a positive way. Living La Vida Volta. Converted classics on display at Golden's Electric Car Show by Corinne Westman. While many of the usual classics were on display at this weekend's car show at Golden High School, there was something different under the hoods. The shiny engines were gone, replaced by small batteries or storage space. The usual roars and revs were substituted for slight hums as the cars pulled onto the lots. Because these once gas-powered classics had been converted to electric. On August 5th, dozens of individuals and companies participated in La Vida Volta electric car show, displaying both factory-released and converted electric cars. 
The converted section included classic cars, modern sports cars, and utility vehicles. Owners described how EV conversion had made their cars faster, more reliable, and more efficient. Plus, it's keeping those classic cars and the spirit of American hot rodding alive for the next generation. It's difficult and expensive, but the results more than makes up for, the, for it, Kevin Erickson said of EV conversion. Erickson, who lives in Commerce City, spent about 18 months converting his 1982 Plymouth satellite to electric. He still makes occasional adjustments, saying he just now got the defrost function working. But he's also modernized it with all the bells and whistles, like remote start. It's now his daily vehicle, as he puts about 10,000 miles a year on it. As an EV, he said the satellite has a 325-mile range and takes about 10 hours to charge at his home. Of course, range and charging depends on which batteries and electric motors owners retrofit into the cars. Brothers Kevin and Tim Bradley took the motor and battery pack from a totaled 2015 Tesla and installed them in Tim's Pontiac Fiero. They also... The work took a solid five months, they said, but it now has a 200-mile range and can charge overnight. Tim, who lives in Colorado, found the Fiero in Iowa with 14,000 miles on it and drove it until it hit 22,000 miles. They started taking it apart for EV conversion in March 2020 and said the pandemic delayed the work. But once it was up and humming, Tim said it was much faster and easier to maintain. It's far better now than it ever was as a gas car, he said. It's impressive to drive. Kevin, who lives in Texas, challenged the belief that EV conversion ruins classic cars. He believed it did the opposite. It helped preserve them by keeping them drivable for longer. Plus, Electric conversion is perfect for classic cars that sit idle for long periods of time, he said. This causes a lot of problems for gas-powered vehicles. But Kevin and Tim pointed out that's not the case once they're converted to electric. As Tim said of electric vehicles, it's like your refrigerator. It always runs. Of course, with electric cars, whether factory released or converted, aren't the best fit for everyone. Nadim Qureshi, who bought, brought a converted 1981 DeLorean from Reno, said people should know their boundaries and limitations before investing in EVs. For every day around the town commuting, he said they're great alternatives and can save on fuel costs and maintenance. EV conversion can be a very labor-intensive, as J builder Jacob Graham spent about a year installing a Nissan Leaf's motor and battery packs into the DeLorean. Graham said it still needs tweaking as it doesn't have heating or air conditioning yet. Graham, who's converted three other vehicles, said he always wanted a DeLorean and wasn't planning to convert it when he bought it. But as it gets harder to keep older gas-powered cars compliant with emissions policies on the road, he said EV conversion helps modernize and simplify them. It's a way to breathe new life into a classic vehicle, Graham continued. Mines adding amenities, seating in Marv K.E. Stadium's West End Zone. Beer Garden, walkway, scheduled to open August 31st, football game. Micron Westerman. Colorado School of Mines football fans might have a new favorite spot in Marv K.E. Stadium this fall. Earlier this year, Mines started construction on a beer garden area and stadium seating in the West End Zone along with an ADA-accessible walkway from the North Concourse to the south entrance around the west edge of the stadium. Despite weather-related challenges, Mines Athletic staff members confirmed August 3rd that everything should be ready to go by the August 31st football game against Grand Valley State. It's the beginning of finishing Marv K. Stadium, Athletic Director David Hansberg said. Originally, the West End Zone was supposed to be like a grass berm where there would be spectators, but that got value engineered out of the original project. Once we opened it up, though, it gave us a better idea of what we needed anyway. 
Marv K Stadium was under construction from 2014 to 15 and hosted its first football games in fall of 2015, Hansberg said. Now, this final two-phase project is underway. This current phase, which cost about $2 million, will add seating and standing room for about 500 people, Hansberg estimated. Mines Athletics is fundraising for the project's second phase, which will include a concession building with a viewing deck, a food truck plaza, and a barbecue area. The second phase could cost about $2.5 million and will take about a year to design and build once funding is secured. Carolyn Denis, Assistant Director of Athletics Internal Operations, said Mines got the first sketch of the McKee West End Zone project almost exactly a year ago and the athletic staff is looking forward to seeing Phase 2 come to fruition. She and Hansberg believed that the new seating and forthcoming amenities would improve the game day experience. For those fans who frequented the children's area and other activities in the West End Zone, this will provide better views and more amenities, Denise said. Plus, Fans and children can still enjoy all the usual favorites in the field level section of the West End Zone. Before this, everything was field level, she said. The old end zone was great as a pilot project. With the success of our programs, it elevated the need for something like this. The beer garden will be open to everyone, but those 21 and older will need a wristband to drink. For beer lovers, Danae said Mines will sell new terrain and Coors products in the West End Zone this season. She's considering setting up a temporary building for beer sales along the walkway. And if that doesn't work, Mines will stick with its usual tent and coolers. She and Hansberg were excited to see how everything looks once Phase 1 is complete and how things shape up for Phase 2. Hansberg said anyone interested in donating toward Phase 2 can do so via the Colorado School of Mines Foundation and indicate that it's for the McKee West End Zone project. We are excited to see everybody at Marv K Stadium on opening day, Hansberg said of the August 31st game. It's going to be fun. My son, the waiter, is 80 minutes of laughs and engaging storytelling. See the show at Lakewood Cultural Center this month by Joe Davis. Brad Zimmerman opened his one-man show, My Son, the Waiter, a Jewish tragedy, with a few jokes. He said they were to warm up the crowd and to allow them time for silencing cell phones. The next 80 minutes at the Lakewood Cultural Center, where the play just opened and is slated to run until August 20th, were an eclectic mix of jokes, monologues, stand-up comedy, and theatric performances that kept the audience laughing. The playbill describes my son, the waiter, and Zimmerman's talents best. Quote, Since the play is hybrid, it reads, Part stand-up, part theater, it's only fitting that Brad is not only a comedian, but an accomplished actor. Zimmerman puts all of his skills and talent into the show to tell the story of his life. He blends comedy with satire and at times later in the play with a little drama to create an engaging experience for the audience. Everywhere we perform, our audiences love to hear my story, Zimmerman said. It's authentic and real and funny. Zimmerman's authenticity shines through when he's telling punchy one-off jokes about growing up with a clingy Jewish mother and when he recounts his 29 years working as a waiter. The cynical tone is there, but it never drags down the material. In fact, the cynicism heightens the character, heightens the comedy, and creates a new character for the next theatrical portion of the play. The actor, writer, and comedian also sets up his stories with strong details. His talent with lyric description allows the audience to the room to tap, sense memories, which help complete the setup for the part of the play. For example, when he spoke about playing baseball as a kid, Zimmerman offers enough information to tap into the audience's memories of childhood sports play. In a few quick and comical sentences, he describes the field, the uniform, the crowds, and the coaches. The audience can create a whole mental image before he moves on to, quote, the meat of the story. 
During the performance, Zimmerman tailored jokes to the audience, especially when a few people started to heckle him gently. Every tour, there is fresh material, but I always keep some of the original stories, he said. The audience's ongoing appreciation enables me to keep the show as fresh as the day I wrote it. In addition, Zimmerman engages the audience, drawing people in. Soon, it feels like you are in a diner somewhere late at night, listening to a friend recount his life as a struggling actor. The Lakewood Cultural Center Auditorium made the show even more intimate with its close quarters and limited seating. When you sit down for My Son the Waiter, the only thing you'll see on stage is a chair, a table on which sits a trophy and water. Don't let the setup fool you. Zimmerman fills the stage in the 80-minute runtime. The play has no intermission, but you won't need it. Once the jokes start, time will fly by. My Son the Waiter, a Jewish tragedy, runs through August 20th at the Lakewood Cultural Center at 470 Allison Parkway in Lakewood. Tickets start at $45. For more information, to get tickets and more, email tickets at lakewood.org or check out the event webpage at lakewood.org. RTD will let metro area youth ride free all year to school, to work, anywhere. By Sarah Martin, Chalkbee, Colorado. Denver area youth will be able to ride for free to school, the mall, work, and just about everywhere they go beginning September 1st under a new regional transportation district pilot program. The free fares for youth 19 and younger riding buses and the light rail system will start following the conclusion of the RTD's Summer Free Fares for Everyone campaign, designed to encourage the use of public transportation and curb pollution during July and August. Until recently, youth customers ages 6 through 19 were eligible for a 70% discount fare and children 5 and younger could ride free with a fare-paying adult. Now, youth customers ages 19 or younger won't pay for RTD services during the pilot program implementation, according to the RTD website. The new pilot stems from a broader study on the structure of fair pricing and equity. Prices are going down for most riders, and the fare structure is simplified to four price options. In Denver, most high school students are ineligible for yellow bus service, limiting transportation options for them to get to school. Denver Public Schools pays for passes to ride public RTD buses to and from school, but students must live more than 2.5 miles from their school. Facing driver shortages and rising costs, the Denver schools have cut bus service for some middle and elementary schools for the next school year and are offering limited service to the Denver School of the Arts. The district must still provide yellow bus service for high school students with disabilities, recent refugees who attend the district's newcomer centers, and English learning high schoolers in the district's bilingual programs. For free rides, drivers may ask kids to show a school or government-issued ID, according to Bill Sroyce, RTD man Senior Manager of Transit-Oriented Communities. RTD plans to collect ride data two ways. Transportation operators will key in information on their keypads, and surveys will be sent out throughout the school year. RTD wants to know if riders are taking advantage of the opportunity and if their opinions have changed on using more public transportation. Quote, we're excited and we're hoping for big success. We've reached out to a lot of the school districts and got some good feedback in terms of contacts to work with to collect data and hopefully see some good results, Saroy said. RTD has projected it will cost the system $3.5 to $4 million in the next year to offer free youth fairs. The youth fair program ends August 31st, 2024. To continue the program, RTD officials want other organizations to help fund a part of the project. DPS did not respond to requests for comment on this story. Last fall, RTD initiated the College Pass program, which provided unlimited free rides to all students who, whose universities opted into the program. Colleges paid for it in different ways. Some included a fee into a student's tuition. Other schools footed the bill. The college program was renewed 
for another year with the addition of semester passes for higher education institutions that didn't participate in the College Pass program. The semester pass will be an opt-in program for individual students who use public transportation rather than the institutions paying for the entire student body. The pass costs $75 per student each month. Chalkbeats is a nonprofit news site covering educational change in public schools. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denver Right, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, Denver Basic Income Project Midterm Report Shows Significant Benefits for the Unhoused, by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, The Blair Caldwell African American Research Library is Reopening. Its New Look and Layout Purposefully Center Blackness, by Desiree Matherin. And, Denver's about to get its first 90-degree August day. But first, can we talk about how gorgeous the weather has been? By Obed Manuel. From Westward, I'll be reading, Youth Advisory Council Proposes Solutions for Violence, Mental Health, and Gender-Affirming Practices. By Katie Cheshire. And, Thanks to New Law, Pregnant Women Can Now Avoid Incarceration in Colorado. By Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver Basic Income Project Midterm Report Shows Significant Benefits for the Unhoused by Robert Davis. Programs that provide no-strings-attached cash payments can significantly decrease stress levels and increase feelings of hopefulness among unhoused folks, according to the Denver Basic Income Project's Midterm Report, which was released on July 19th. The qualitative report captures some of the experiences of program participants in Denver and also sheds light on how they are spending their money and planning for bigger life changes like moving into a new home. It was released one day after Denver Mayor Mike Johnston declared a local state of emergency on homelessness. A quantitative report on the project is expected to be released in October. These preliminary findings confirm our belief that providing basic income to people experiencing homelessness with trust, dignity, and speed will improve lives for the better, said DPIP founder, executive director Mark Donovan. DBIP was founded in 2020 under the premise of using cash payments to address homelessness in Denver, a problem that has been on the top of many minds in the city. The latest Pulse poll from the Colorado Health Foundation found that 79% of Denverites think homelessness is either an extremely serious problem or a very serious problem. Meanwhile, Denver's unhoused population has increased by about 43% from around 3,300 in 2017 to nearly 4,800 in 2022, according to federal snapshot data. The city's unsheltered population has increased by a staggering 141% from 544 to 1,313 over the same period, the data shows. Program participants will receive payments for 12 consecutive months, although there are three different payment tiers. One group will receive $1,000 per month for the entire 12 months time frame. Another group received a one-time payment of $6,500 and then received $500 per month for the rest of the year. The control group is receiving $50 per month. DPIP participant demographics also mirror the demographics of unhoused folks in Denver, the report adds. DPIP performed two small pilots of its program in August of 2021 and June 2022. The program officially launched in November 2022 and began making payments shortly thereafter, according to the project's website. To date, DBIP has distributed around $5 million to 846 individuals and families that are participating, according to the report. Funding for the project has come from the Department of Local Affairs, Denver's Department of Housing Stability, and nonprofit organizations like the Colorado Trust, Donovan said. Participants that had bank accounts received their payments through either debit cards or ACH transfers from DBIP, Donovan said. 
Some participants also receive cell phones so they can check their bank balances. Donovan added that DBIP has also provided support to replace lost or stolen cards for participants as well. Outside of the financial benefits, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless Chief Public Policy Officer Kathy Alderman said the report also found that cash assistance improves the overall health and well-being of people experiencing homelessness. CCH is one of the 19 community-based organizations that has helped connect unhoused folks with DBIP. Some participants shared testimonies about how DBIP helped them feel less stressed and improved their outlook on life. Others reported spending their money on groceries, transportation, or mending relationships with friends and family. A small portion of participants also used some of the money to do something nice for themselves, according to the report. It's not enough for someone to simply get a home. You can see the weight of hopelessness lift off these individuals, Alderman said. People have the opportunity to take a step back and say, what's the next best move, instead of only asking, what do I have to do to survive today? Going forward, DBIP researchers like Daniel Brisson at Denver University's Center for Housing and Homelessness Studies said they are paying attention to the potential benefit cliff that some participants may face when the program ends later this year. A benefit cliff refers, refers to a sudden or unexpected decrease in income from benefits like DPIP or public programs like Social Security or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. DBIP could collect data about potential benefit cliffs during exit interviews with program participants, Brisson said, but that data is not part of the program's original framework. We'd like to sustain this type of programming for as long as possible so we can learn what happens when people don't face that benefit cliff, Donovan said. This is something that has never been done before, and that's why this kind of research is so valuable. The next two articles are from Denverite. The Blair Caldwell African American Research Library is reopening. Its new look and layout purposefully center blackness by Desiree Matherin. Intentionality, community mindfulness, and blackness were the three major components Jamika Lewis, branch manager of the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library, and her team considered during the building's renovation. Beyond the physical renovations like HVAC repair, adding accessibility components, and design overhauling, the overall goal was to make the space intentionally black history-centered with the surrounding community in mind. From the colors to the historical photos on bookshelves to the books on display, the new Blair Caldwell space is steeped in black culture, and folks can see it for themselves at a grand reopening planned for this Saturday. Lewis said the programming starts at 10 a.m. at the Five Points branch located at 2401 Welton Street. Once you were in this space, there was nothing that said this is a black library, said Lewis. When I first met with the architect, I said this renovation has to represent blackness with intention, and that's what we really wanted to accomplish. Blair Caldwell opened in 2003 and is a nationally recognized public library that focuses on collecting and preserving African American history and culture. It's one of five research libraries attached to the public library system in the U.S. that focuses on black history through collection archives. But since its opening, The building had not received any type of physical or design update. In 2017, voters passed the Elevate Denver bond that allocated about $2.8 million toward renovating the space. Recently, voters also passed Referred Question 2I, which slightly increased property taxes to add additional money to the Denver Public Library Fund. With the 2I ordinance, Lewis said staffing has increased and new staff members are receiving higher pay. Pay raises for existing staff were on the way, she added. Through that funding, the branch will also have extended hours. Some of that funding was also used toward the renovation. Lewis said the whole first floor was transformed into an open space with added study rooms, a new teen space, lowered shelves, and computer desks that are height adjustable. The old layout had the circulation desk sitting smack dab at the front entrance, and Lewis said it was like a fortress. It felt intimidating and not inviting. Now the desk is off to the side, where folks can see the librarians if they need help. 
A seating area with homey vibes that the librarians call the living room now sits where the old circulation desk used to be. Touches of black culture are seen in the space's color scheme as well as the nearest book choices. Lewis said that the colors throughout the space are a nod to the pan-African flag of red, green, and black. The nearby bookshelf is a curated shelf of black history books. Everything that is in our research room upstairs is black history and culture stuff, but it does not circulate, Lewis said. You can't check out any of those black history books upstairs. I said we are not meeting an information need by having our black history books behind our doors. So Lewis went through the collection of about 1,400 books and picked 600 to bring downstairs to add to the circulation shelves. This collection mirrors the collection upstairs. Customers can actually come in and sit and browse and check these books out, Lewis said. That's just one way, Lewis said, that the branch is focusing on black history and black authors. Along the walls and on the end caps of every shelf are historical pictures of black people from Five Points, Denver, and Colorado. There's a young photo of Charles Burrell, the first black musician to join the Colorado Symphony, with his signature cigar and bass. There's also photos of school kids and black cowboys. Display cases spread throughout the first floor will at some point be filled with 3D archival pieces, but for now they include collected memorabilia from staff members. Lewis collects racist memorabilia such as mammy figures. It's an act of resistance, absolutely, because I feel like certain people shouldn't have that, Lewis said. In the new teen space, there's a room with a large TV and seating along with a collection of black YA novelists, including books such as The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and Everybody Looking by Candace Lowe. The room will have gaming systems and charging stations for interested teen library goers. Lewis said the room will also be a creative space where teens can draw on the windows with glass markers and there will be a space for black teen artists to display their work. Outside the room is another seating area next to the YA shelves that again displays more black novelists' work. It's very intentional and very on purpose because a lot of these black titles tend to not circulate as much as other ones and we wanted this to be a nod to the African American collection, Lewis said. We're the only branch in DPL that has a specific focus, and that gives me some leverage to say that this is our mission and we should be promoting these things. We look at data. We see that the black featured books and black focus material don't circulate like others do. Intentionally displaying black authors is the norm around the library, especially in the children's section that is next door to the teen room. Starting in September, Lewis said the branch will host weekly story times with librarians and guest speakers. All the books read there will feature black characters. We do have this specialization, but we are still in a system. Any of system-wide program initiatives, we still do all of those. They're just going to be black, Lewis said. Next to the children's section is an art piece from Denver artist Sam McNeil with Superior Ironworks Plus. The piece is a table in the shape of the Five Points intersection, and the top of the table includes children's book featuring black characters. The first floor wasn't the only space to get an update. The second and third floors received new carpeting. The second floor historical archive featuring the community cases also got a facelift with the help of Dexter Nelson II, the museum and archives supervisor with the branch. The cases were reorganized to better show off the contents. Lewis and Nelson said the updated space can be curated by locals and they encourage folks to come to the museum and drop off anything they believe is a historical piece of Five Points, Denver, or Colorado history. We're really big on community. We can tell you all about Leroy Smith or Charles Burrell, but it's way better to have them tell you, Nelson said. We really want to prioritize oral histories. We have these folks that have this amazing history and this amazing connection to these national stories that you might not know. These people are here in Denver, here in Colorado, and they're black folks. Lewis said community is the driving force behind many of the changes in programming at Blair, and that won't change, even as the historically black Five Points neighborhood experiences a change in racial demographics. Blair Caldwell was founded purposefully in a black community, but with rising rent and gentrification, 
the neighborhood landscape has changed with shuttered businesses and fewer black residents. But that won't deter the Blair Caldwell staff from making the branch a focal point of blackness. If you can name for me five other DPL locations where you can get black programming, intentional black programming, and highlighting the accomplishments of black people throughout the year, then we'll change, Lewis said. When the Webbs founded this place, they founded it with the intention of this always being a black cultural center, a place where black belonging and black community can happen. That's not changing, no matter who lives across the street, no matter who lives next door. Folks can stop by and experience that black culture, history, and more on Saturday at the reopening celebration in commemoration of the branch's 20th anniversary. Also, check out the new spaces. Community leaders Stuart Tucker-Lundy, Adrian Miller, and Quan Atlas will host a story time. There'll be some performances from jazz artists, spoken word poets, and musician Kid Astronaut. Lewis said Blair is entering a new era. She and Nelson agreed that the future of Blair Caldwell will include more black communities such as the LGBTQ community, various artists, and podcasters. Any black creative who would like to have their work displayed can reach out to the branch, Lewis and Nelson said. The goal is to grow and continually intentionally provide a space for blackness and a space to learn about blackness. Blair is really a lighthouse, Nelson said. Lewis added, everyone is welcome. We want everyone to come in and get this history. We want everyone to come in and get this information because black history, learning about it, is not just for black people. Anyone can come in here and see themselves represented, whether it's on the walls or whether it's amongst my staff. Denver's about to get its first 90 degree August day. But first, can we talk about how gorgeous the weather has been? By Obed Manuel. Can we take a second or two to shout out just how nice it's been outside since the start of August? The cool breeze flowing in through my window has been a highlight of my week, given that I've been sick the past two days after my kid shared his cold with me. The cooler weather has given our brand new AC unit a break. It's only run a few times this week. But today's forecast from the National Weather Service shows it will be the first day in August that will reach 90 degrees in Denver, and we could hit that mark again Friday and Saturday. It's been a relatively cool start to August compared to at least the last two years. By this point in August last year, we'd already hit the 90 degree mark seven times and triple digits once, according to NWS historical data. And the temperature reached 90 degrees four times in August 2021 in the same number of days. Sure, the sun has been its usual very hot and aggressive self. It is summer after all. But that's nothing a good tree, we love a good tree, or hat can't help you deal with. The mornings have felt cold, to me anyway. This was especially true on Sunday when I went to the final Viva Streets Denver on Broadway and met with a few of you at our table. At times, I longed for a hoodie. Anyway, this summer, with its rainiest June since the 1880s, has been my favorite since I made the move here from Texas, where a lot of my family and friends have been dealing with triple-digit highs almost all summer long. Sadly, there is a hammer drop coming to all of this. Denver's summers are probably just going to get hotter as the West gets hotter and drier because of climate change, and that's just something those of us who live here will likely have to just get used to. For now, let's enjoy the next few days. After Saturday, max temps will dip back into the 80s until next Wednesday according to the current NWS forecast. So, if you have kiddos in Denver Public Schools, be sure to make that most of the nice days left before they start school, and maybe take them somewhere nice. The following articles are from Westward. Youth Advisory Council proposes solutions for violence, mental health, and gender-affirming practices by Katie Cheshire. Young Coloradans are often affected by policies passed by the state legislature while not being old enough to have a say in such legislation. But what if the kids were in charge? The Colorado Youth Advisory Council, established by lawmakers in 2008, is answering that query this year with a series of policy solutions put forth by high school students in the areas of youth violence, mental health, racial equality in education, and gender-affirming practices in schools. 
The greatest impact it's had on me is that I'm not relying on other people to do the work, says Lee Schmidt, an alum of the program. I'm not trying to persuade legislators to do the work. I am actually the one doing it myself. Members of the Youth Advisory Council, high school students ages 14 to 19, serve two-year terms during which they identify problems and research solutions that could turn into actual state legislation. In the 2021 legislative sessions, for example, four different COYAC proposals were pushed through and made into law. Schmidt, who is heading to George Washington University after graduating from Lakewood High School, completed her two-year term in June, but she's continuing to testify in this session's committee owing to her passion for the subject matter. The Colorado Youth Advisory Council in Interim Committee, which reviews the work of the Youth Advisory Council and recommends legislation, comprises three elected Democrats and two Republicans from the legislature, in addition to the seven youths selected for the program from the 40 COYAC members. I've learned a ton about the state government, and it's helped me figure out what I want to do going forward, Schmidt says. She plans to study international relations with a minor in Spanish and eventually run for local office. The former council member will definitely have the experience if she does. Students are questioned with vigor by the members of the advisory committee in the legislature and don't get a free pass when it comes to their ideas. It's the same work that the legislators do themselves, Schmidt explains. The adults in the legislature are not in schools every day, so they just don't have the same perspective that we do. Here's an overview of each 2023 student proposal. Youth Mental Health and Licensed Psychologists. Every single person knows someone who struggles with mental health, testified COYAC participant Sidna Reddy at an August 9th committee meeting. Solutions simply have not worked to the degree that they should, which is why we need to try something new. Naredi cited Healthy Kids Colorado data from 2021 in which 40% of kids surveyed faced depression and 17% considered suicide. Across Colorado, 124 of the state's 188 school districts do not have licensed school psychologists, he continued. In the schools that do, 31 of them do not meet the National Association of School Psychologists' recommended ratio of one psychologist to every 500 students. With these high ratios, Students are unable to build strong relationships with the psychologists that they're seeing, and this ends up worsening patient outcomes overall, Naredi concluded. After finding that only a quarter of those who graduated from licensed school psychology programs in Colorado ended up remaining in the state after one year, the COYAC crew proposed student loan relief for practicing school psychologists who work for three years in districts that previously did not have one. Colorado is an expensive place to live, and oftentimes the wages for school psychologists in these underserved areas are not necessarily up to par with what they may find in other states, Naredi said. How to Decrease School Shootings COYAC member Kate Priest shared with, that the students found several issues related to school shooting prevention. First off, school resource officers are under-researched. According to a study by Brown University, school resource officers, while they do prevent violence in schools, are not shown to prevent gun violence in schools, Priest said. They are shown to increase arrests, expulsions, and long-term absences, especially for minorities and students of color. Next, the students observed issues with Safe to Tell, the state's anonymous reporting method established after the Columbine shootings. Its annual report is not peer-reviewed, and Priest noted that there is a stigma around those who use Safe to Tell being considered snitches. The students also found that threat assessment in the schools is inconsistent across the state. Currently, there is no required assessment, and the 2015 Claire Davis School Safety Act, established after its namesake teen was murdered at school, causes schools to be hesitant to label students as threats, Priest said. The act says that schools are liable for any gun violence from students that they're currently assessing like that, she continued. This makes schools more eager to expel students rather than support them through threat assessment or other mental health support. To make matters worse, 
there are also not enough counselors to provide that support, as Nerede showed. Therefore, COYAC is proposing the creation of a task force to research counselors in schools, threat assessment training, and the efficacy of programs like SROs and Safe to Tell. The students also want to require school districts to post information about safe storage of guns on their websites annually in order to make